If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to go to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of what we call the New Testament. And uh, last week, if you were here, I preached for about 44 minutes an introduction to a passage, and uh, hopefully today we're going to get right to the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but last week I also admitted that I tend to um, watch YouTube videos. I, I find that a great way to kind of turn my brain off a little bit. And I like to watch those blooper reels of things like, especially some of the things that I find funny are when news programs, people do bloopers on news program, when live television goes wrong or those game show things where people say the wrong thing or the first thing that jumps in their mind that they should have never said out loud. But also, I don't know about you, but the other thing I'm a sucker for, I, I, I'm one of those guys, I cry, I'm a sucker for uh, good news stories. I like to watch those videos where military people surprise their mom or their dad or their kids or their wife coming back from military service. I, I love to watch those auditions on America's Got Talent or, or The Voice or all these things where someone's got a great story and and all of a sudden, they open their mouth, and there's just beautiful music comes out of it. And Debbie will walk into the bedroom and look at me, and my eyes, I'm just crying my eyes out. And she just says, you're such a sook. And um, one of those videos that I, I love to watch are the ones where you've seen people that have either been, um, they've lost their hearing maybe, or something's happened. And often, it's ones where a man or a woman or a young child gets those special hearing aids and they show the camera when they, the, the doctor just turns those things on for the first time and, and they hear for the very first time. And, and you just see the awe in their faces. I watched one of these videos where this young lady got these fancy hearing aids. And the first thing that she heard when the doctor turned them on was her boyfriend knelt down on one knee and asked her to marry him. And the first words she heard were, Will you marry me? Debbie walked in. I'm, I'm just sobbing away and, and all these types of things. And, and I don't know, another one of those ones that when, uh, when you know, uh, people that have suffered from colorblindness and, and a family gets together and they buy those special glasses for their, their, that special someone and they open them up and they, they put them on and they see colors for the very first time. And all the tears and all that things... I don't know about you, but if you've watched the news and you see those news articles of those natural disasters when tornadoes rip through or flooding and we've seen those mothers that are uh, clinging to their baby in water or on top of a rooftop waiting to be rescued or maybe you've seen those uh, infomercials or those very, very heart-wrenching television commercials about, television, or about children's hospitals and they'll have that one little child who's maybe bald from cancer treatment, who's looking at you and saying, please give and support this particular hospital. I don't know if you've been to a mall or to a park and you've watched that person or you've had that encounter with that child or that young adult or that older person who suffers with Down syndrome or suffers with cerebral palsy or you've seen or met that amputee victim or that fire victim and you've just felt that tinge of compassion, that weird feeling you get where you wonder what happened combined with or colliding with, I wish I could fix this. Now contrast those emotions that you've just conjured up in your mind 
when you're trying to find a parking spot downtown with all of the construction, trying to get to your favorite restaurant, and then you encounter that panhandler that asks for money. And what kind of emotions do you feel then? Or you stop at that stoplight there at Ken Mountain Thorben or down by Kelsey or these other places, and there's that person that has that sign that says, you know, out of a job or homeless or traveled from out west, would you help me? Do you cry for them? You see, I spoke at great length for those of you that are here this week. Last week I spoke a lot, and Jennifer mentioned it, about suffering and about miracles. We often wonder about suffering, and we try to put it in categories. And the categories of suffering that we can understand, we usually put in one of three categories, karma, vengeance, revenge, or justice. What we don't have a category for is when someone that we perceive as innocent is suffering, what do we do now? The other misconception is about miracles. I've had a number of you come to me over this last week and tell me you were shocked to learn that in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you are just very, very conservative and you say it covers about 6,000 years of human history, outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only about 130 to 140 miracles. That's less than one for every 50, 60 years. The greatest concentration of miracles happen in the Gospels. They're nowhere near as common as you and I think they are. I spoke at great lengths last week as well to remind us that John writes the gospel and he laid it out the way he did with those seven wonderful signs and these seven great I am statements of Jesus. And he doesn't tell you till the end of his gospel why he wrote it. I'll remind you again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So John's even narrowing his recollection of miracles to only what was done in the presence of of the disciples. And we know that Jesus did many other miracles and disciples weren't present. But he says, these are not written in the book, but the ones that are written, these seven that I have chosen for you are written so that you may, and here's the result. He wants you to come to this conclusion that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So not just Jesus is real, not just Jesus was a good teacher, Not that Jesus was a good man. Not that Jesus could do stuff that most others couldn't. His conclusion is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And if you do that, this is the result. And by believing that, you may have life in his name. Now, don't miss the fact that he's writing to people that are alive. So he must mean by default that he expects if you will believe this, you will have a quality of life, an outlook on life that is not normal for most humans to have. And so I want to actually walk us through John chapter 9 verses 1 to 12 as we make our way into communion time. And let me be clear up front. Here's what I'm asking every one of you to make a decision about. We all must come to a decision about Jesus. Every one of you. You see, from the visitors here to the people that I know very intimately, I can categorically tell you, you all have an opinion about Jesus. Everybody does. From indifference to passionate. And you all have to decide not only who Jesus is, 
But here's the crux of it. Do we trust him? Do you trust him? Can we? I mean, what are we going to celebrate today? What are we going to remember? What is church all about? I once heard a friend of mine say, I can't, I can't get over how many people kind of come to church that have spirituality, but I have to tell you straight up front, if church is your hobby, I think that's pathetic. If church is a hobby, with all due respect at being a bit crude, go get a life. But I pray church is more than a hobby. Church is more than just where you dab your little bit of spirituality. It's got to be something. It's something you're passionate about. After all, if we don't, if you don't and I don't, if we don't truly trust Jesus, what do we have? John says if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're going to have life in his name. So let's begin. Let me read the passage. Here's what John says. This is the sixth sign. All right, this is the sixth of the seventh. The only one left comes in chapter 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. This one is the miracle of the man, now notice, born blind. So notice what John says. And as he passed, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now listen to me. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I love this, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he, Jesus, notice, spits on the ground and made mud with his saliva, which is his spit. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And in parentheses, likely in your Bible, it says, Which means sent. So that, so he went, and this is the man now, and washed. And notice how anticlimactic this is. And came back seeing. A guy born blind... Went and did what he was told, comes back seeing. That's as much drama as John is going to put into it. But now here's where the drama really picks up, verse 8. The neighbors, notice that word, the neighbors. (laughs) These were people that grew up by this guy. And those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now notice the the conversation. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. It's his doppelganger. Because we know the guy was born blind. But he kept saying, I am the man. (laughs) Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And I love this for the Captain Obvious Award. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Because he was blind when all of this happened. Okay? 
And so may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, you'll notice if you got a bulletin, I wanted to make sure you got one. There's a couple things in there that, one, I want you to notice that in that bulletin is a, pa- a, a pass out or an insert about Kilbride. Don't read it now. I want you to pay attention to the sermon. But, Jeff, I think we'll talk about it at the end of the service, okay? There's also a thing in your bulletin that I put in there to help you not only for sermons, but when you read the Bible, it talks about the way you should approach Scripture, kind of the idea of observe and interpret and apply. So it's O-I-A, okay? So make sure you take that because this is largely will help you when you interpret the Scriptures and you read it. So my first point for you this morning is this. This is a miracle of Jesus' divine sovereign power. This was given to him by God. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's all for the glory of God. So here you go. Here's my first point. Number one, Jesus sees the problem. Now, I know that verse 1 of chapter 9 is almost like a throwaway verse. And as he passed by, he saw a man born blind. But don't. you got to fight the urge to do this, Okay. Jesus is passing by, and John wants, he uses these words, and he sees the blind man. He sees where others don't. Obviously, the blind man doesn't see him. And I want you to think that, think that through with me. This man was born blind. He only knows blindness. Darkness for him is normal. Darkness isn't something that he's afraid of, like you and I can be afraid of sudden darkness. He can't understand any attempts to tell him about a sunrise or a sunset. He has no frame of reference when you say, the stars are beautiful tonight. He does not know if a woman is beautiful to look upon her. He does not understand the beauty of the mountain ranges or how beautiful the temple is unless someone has tried desperately to explain it because he's got no frame of reference. All he knows is is darkness. Life for him is darkness. That's hard for you and I to comprehend in this room because we know light. In fact, notice he's outside the temple. We're told he's a beggar multiple times in those 12 verses. He's outside. He's cut off. Not only is he cut off, he can't see even if he wants to. He doesn't realize that Jesus is walking by, that the Savior of the world is near him, and he doesn't know it. And don't lose sight of that. He is born blind, so he probably thinks, nobody can help me. We'll find out in weeks to come that in all of human history, in the Bible, there's all types of people that are cured of blindness, but no one has been been healed who was born blind. So not only does he think, no one will help me, he probably thinks, no one will even try. And as I said before, the blind have been healed, but no one born blind. And let me ask you this, put yourself in his shoes. How do you think he feels? What kind of questions race through his mind? I'll get into that in a minute. But here is the light of the world is coming. He's passing by. And don't forget all that's happened back in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is all about this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember two things about this festival. One, 
were these torches. There were these four massive brass torches, one that on the four corners of the temple. And a, a young priest would have to go and take gallons of oil every day of that feast and relight it. They were like four Olympic torches, if you really want to understand it. When we have the Olympics and they light the torch, and that torch can be seen from all around the Olympic village. Well, imagine now there's four of them. And commentators tell us, and the Jewish historian Josephus tells us, that when these four torches were lit, it cast a gaze. And for some of you that are old enough and willing to date yourself, if you remember Sprung Greenhouse, if you remember what it was like when Sprung Greenhouse was lit, and you'd be in Mount Pearl at 12 o'clock at night, and it was like it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. It just cast its light everywhere. But also, there was the Pool of Shalom in the Feast of Tabernacles. Every day of that feast, the priest would go and get water from the pool of Siloam and pour it over the altar, and they would consecrate that particular thing. And Jesus has just finished saying in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and these torches are his backdrop. Religion has argued about him and denied him to the point of, look back at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 58, they picked up stones to kill him. So John wants you to read chapter 8 and chapter 9 together, basically saying, look, look what the light of the world in coming into the world looks like, and take notice of its effect on different groups of people. And so Jesus is not just passing by a blind man. He's sovereignly passing by a blind man who was born that way, a beggar who has a social stigma upon his life, his whole life, and which we will explain now in the next verse because look at verse 2 and 3 because secondly, look at the disciples' blind question. There's Jesus seeing and then the disciples' blind question. Notice what they say to him. Who was sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? If you make notes, note this, Jesus sees the man, the disciples see a theological discussion. They don't see a human. This was very convicting to me because I live in Kenmount Terrace. I drive down by Kelsey all the time and I see James who stands there. I know his name is James. I've talked to James. I've prayed for James. I've witnessed to James who stands there and he has a form of Tourette's. He definitely has mental illness. He's an alcoholic. He stands there and begs, gets enough to eat, enough to buy some alcohol. He drifts between Sobeys and the liquor store and Subway and Dairy Queen and the Tim Hortons. And I cannot tell you to my shame how often I've pulled up to that intersection and sat there and never saw the human but saw the dilemma and talked about the dilemma as if he wasn't even there. The disciples see a theological discussion. And I think that's true of us. Every one of us is struggling by far even more today in 2019 because nobody doesn't acknowledge that suffering exists in the world. Every one of you here feels bad about suffering. We talk about suffering. We try to imagine why it exists or what would a world without suffering be like. But few of us actually do something about suffering. Only Jesus is both willing and able to do something for this man. And watch the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, they are thinking as their culture is. 
which is, by the way, a reason for you to read your Bible and pray every day because they didn't even realize. Here was the disciples walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, being taught by Jesus, and yet when they were faced with just an everyday experience, their automatic reaction was to think the way the culture thinks. And you have no idea. You might think, well, I go to church and I read my Bible and I'm around Christians. And yet you watch television, you got a cell phone, you're in the world at school, at work, and you have no idea how in everyday life you will still react just just like the culture reacts. And so here's them reacting the way their culture does. And so what's the problem? Why did they ask this? And here it is. They are thinking in terms of a deed and not disposition. They want to know what did he do or what did his parents do? You see, remember I said suffering. We either put it in karma, revenge, or justice. That's our categories. Because we don't know, we don't have a category when someone innocently suffers. So they're wondering, what did this guy do? What did he do to deserve this? Where's the karma at, Jesus? And folks, this assumption is as old as the book of Job. Who wants friends like Job's friends? When you have lost everything and they show up and then they sit with you for seven days and don't open their mouths and you think, well, it's good to have friends. And then they finally go, okay, let's talk. What did you do wrong? That's their opening statement. How would you like that if you had friends that visited you in the hospital and that was their opening line? How are you? What did you do wrong? Right? But how often do we do this? You see, the culture said, this is karma. This is revenge. This is punishment. This is judgment. And they're likely thinking about passages in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy where God warns the nation of Israel about sins that will visit the generations of the third and fourth removed. But see, God in the Old Testament there was talking to a nation about a nation here. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There are examples of sin that affect us physically. I don't want to deny that, all right? In the Old Testament, the sister of Moses, Miriam, she argued she tried to go against Moses and God struck her with leprosy. But she was healed upon confession. Remember even the man back in John chapter 5 who was healed from his paralysis. Jesus said to him, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. There are times too when children suffer because of the deeds of their parents. If a mother is an alcoholic and she continues to drink during her pregnancy, does she not often pass fetal alcohol syndrome onto her child? So I'm not saying that the disciples weren't wrong in their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? I'm saying that they were wrong in their assumption. What did he do to deserve this? Or what did his parents do to deserve this? Tell us, Jesus, why are you staring into this guy? We want to know. I don't think they expected Jesus to heal him. The the, the course of their their question, I think they fully expected Jesus to give them a theological dissertation on what a punk this guy was. But notice thirdly, Jesus' light-giving commission. Now listen up, those of you that claim to be Christians. You see, Jesus responds to the disciples, and once again, we're introduced to what I talked about earlier. Every passage of the Bible tells you something about God. It tells you factually what was happening in the moment, but has a direct application or a desired response that you and I should have. So Jesus is going to correct their faulty theology. Notice what he says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, they saw a theological problem. Jesus saw a person. Jesus wants wants us to understand God's love and his holiness. God is not up in heaven. See, this is the problem. Too many of you, I love you, but too many of you view God like we view Greek mythology. Right? God's not in heaven sitting on his throne with all of his power going, who am I going to hit today that got out of line? And yet a lot of us see God that way. I do good, then good things happen. I do bad, bad things happen. The problem is, what happens when you do bad things, but good things happen? And then the greater problem is when you do good things and bad things happen. If you want to know the bulk of my pastoral counseling is to counsel people who think they have done good things, but bad things are happening in their life. And they're wondering, wait a second, God broke the agreement because that's our view of God. I can think, and I'm always bent to think this way. Listen, I'm not just a salesman. I'm a client. All right. Uh, Let me tell you about an experience. I know some of you know me from my growing up days. I went to a Christian school all my life. And in my Christian school, we had a program called ACE. And we did paces and stuff like that. And we had gold charts. And we had to set our work. And so we had what we called gold check monitors, all right? And they would come and we had all these flags. And it was very elaborate. I didn't know if I was being trained to be an air traffic controller or what I was doing. But I had flags that I had to wave and put up and all these things. But we'd have the gold check monitor came every day and would check all of my work, my gold chart, my homework slips, everything. And if I got anything wrong, then I got demerits or a detention. Now, every now and then, I would get punished unjustly. I really did. I had legitimately done the right thing, but I had a rookie gold check monitor, and he or she didn't understand all the rules and the exceptions to the rules, and so they only knew the letter of the law, and I get tagged with these demerits or this detention, and I was innocent. So I would go home with all of my anger and my indignation of injustice, and I would say to Dad, this isn't fair. I was innocent. And here's what my loving father would say. Son, oh, I hate it when he said that. It's true, this time you might have suffered unjustly, but let me ask you this. How many times did you get away with stuff and not get caught? Oh, really, Dad? You're going to pull that card on me? And he would remind me of how much I had enjoyed the mercy and grace of God, even though I had done bad things. But he was correcting the fact that my thought, thought theology was this isn't fair. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains it this way. God is not up in heaven trying to hit people. Anyone can testify to the fact that many times he or she has sinned and has not reaped the fruits of that sin. God has been gracious in a wonderful way. How tender and patient he is with us. Jesus could well have said to them, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he could have said, yes. Because he would have went all the way back to Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that we're told that in Adam we are all sinners. We are dispositionally sinners. We were born sinners. Again, if all of you that are parents that all sent your kids downstairs, I can say this. You never taught them how to get angry. You never taught them to say no. We, we have a, a, an 18-month-old grandson and a 5-month-old granddaughter. And already my granddaughter, who cannot say a word, has already shown me with her face that the first word she will say will be no. 
Theo's first word was no. No. And he can say it in a variety of ways. You know, from no to no. And then we're all cute and you're all like, oh, right? Like, but, but his word is no. You see, we are not sinners because we sinned and we became sinners. We sin because we are sinners. But notice what Jesus says. I want you to see the grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 3 again. He says that God, that the works of God may be displayed in him. Now, Jesus is not saying, listen, I struck this guy with blindness in the womb so I could make a point. I'm going to have him live his life, and I'm going to show up some point. I love this explanation. F.F. Bruce explains it so well. He says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born, to be born blind, in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aspiration on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when this child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others, and seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. In other words, Jesus is telling them, disciples, listen to me, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I'm the light of the world. Watch how that looks in the life of just one person. And I want you to see it and get it. Oh, and by the way, before I move on, I want you to know, do you know that experientially? Because those of you that would claim to be Christians, let me ask you this. Have you not actually lived this out where your suffering has led to the glory of God? Any kind of suffering. Has it not shown you more of the grace and mercy of God? Is that not what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he said, I have learned, I have learned that when I am weak, he is strong and that his grace is sufficient for me? Malcolm Muggeridge said this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. So, Jesus goes on and more and just explain the man's predicament. He corrects the disciples and then he commissions them. Look at the next verse. He must work the works of him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus says to them, look, I want you to see what the gospel will do. I want you to see this suffering and I want you to do something about it. I don't want you just to talk about suffering. Or, or, and, and, and we have a, a reason for it. The night is coming. Now, this is a direct link to the fact that Jesus in just a few months is going to literally hang upon a cross. He's the light of the word physically right there and right now. But they have the chance to learn from him and be like him to point folks to him. And so just as they were to say, there's Jesus, the light of the world, you and I are called to reflect the light of the world. We're to be like Christ. We're called to love people. To help the hurting. I want you to pray for me, church. This Wednesday, I'm supposed to be interviewed by CBC Radio and on the go. They found out about our church being built out there on the roundabout. And because of that, they've called me. And I was telling them about what we want our church to be and what we want to be all about. And this lady, Francesca Swan, when I told her about how we just want to love people, that we are a motley crew. Forgive me. I expressed that we are just a motley crew of misfits and broken people. I hope that doesn't offend you. But that's the truth. And I said, we are a collection of broken people from all over St. John's and Newfoundland and indeed around the world. 
And the only one we have is Jesus, and we cling to him. And Francesca said to me on the phone twice now, this fascinates me. Because that's not what they're used to hearing. We're supposed to love people, help the hurting, offer answers to suffering, do our part to alleviate it, and give the whole world a peace and an answer that transcends the present. I love this. Charles Spurgeon once said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, begging them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Is that me and you? Is that this church? Do you realize there's no pride in that statement? Just unmitigated passion and love for others. And so then, Jesus gives life light-giving healing. Look at verses 6 and 7. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes, and with the mud, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back singing. I will tell you, John gets the award for anticlimactic, doesn't he? Stop and think about this. How many times did this guy, how many, many years did this man grope in the darkness asking, why me, God? Do you not think that he did not take on his own identity of the culture that said something is primarily wrong with you? Everybody else can see and I can't see anything. My whole life I've had to listen to people talk about what they're seeing and I can only imagine. I don't even have any memories to aid me in my imagination. It's not like he had sight and went blind. He was born this way. Do you think if anybody could look up heavenward... And go, why me? It was him? Can you imagine the frustration and the torment? Year after year, he dealt with this affliction. And yet, this very passage was recently in the news. I'm a pop culture buff. I I watch the news all the time. Uh, Just recently, a movie was released titled Mary Magdalene. And the lead actor was Joaquin Phoenix. And as it, he was interviewed about, because he played Jesus... Now, I think Hollywood could have picked much wiser. But actually, in the interview, he asked, was asked about this very passage. And he said, I told the director and the producers, I refuse to do this particular scene. He thought it was beneath Jesus to spit and make mud and rub it on this person's eyes. He said, who would do that? Not the Jesus I've thought of were his words. This is the offense of this. In fact, in the interview, he actually uses profanity to say there's no way he would do that. He looked at it as humiliating. And by the way, just so you know, it's not the first time that Jesus uses his spit or saliva. In Mark chapter 7, he spits into a man's ears so he can hear again. And in Mark chapter 8, he spit in a man's eyes. He didn't make it. He actually spit in his eyes. Now, I will tell you, there's lots of debate about why Jesus does this. And let me clue this up very quickly. We don't know. (laughs) All right? So if you want to waste hours of your life and go figure out why he did that, break a leg, I give you all the books you want. We don't know. What I will say is important, don't miss, is that this pool of Siloam. That's what John goes out of his way because he says he sent him to the pool of Siloam. And in brackets says, which means sent. And that factors in back to the Feast of the Tabernacle. Right? Because they would go and get 
water from here. And if you understand the Hezekiah's tunnel, it's to this day. Hezekiah back in 701 BC cut this tunnel. It's 530 meters that they cut this t- tunnel from the, the riverbed into through to the pool of Siloam underneath the walls of Jerusalem. And so the idea was that this wall delivered, it sent water into Jerusalem and protected them. You can read about it in 2 Kings 20 or 2 Chronicles 32. And so it was looked at as miraculous. The, the Jews had looked at it as it was a reminder that Messiah will come just as the water has come. And that's why the priests would go and get water from the pool of Siloam. And they would anoint the altar because the idea was one day we won't have to do these sacrifices anymore. One day the Messiah would come and be the once for all sacrifice. And don't you find yourself wanting to yell at your Bible, why don't you guys get it? He's right there. And they refuse to see it. So having seeing eyes, they're blind. So he sent one and he asked him to trust and obey. He anoints his eyes with mud and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now listen, he either had to stumble his way down there or he had to ask someone, can you take me there? I don't know about you. I have just a dramatic bend to me. So I try to imagine, did he stumble down there? Did he have a buddy? And as they're going down, ask him, what do you think is going to happen? I just think I'm going to wash my eyes off. Like, was he hope-filled? Did he have faith? He's like, I know that Jesus healed tons of people. What does he look like? What's this going to do? And I love it. Now, finally, the world's blind confusion. And from here on, I have to tell you, over the next few weeks, I can't wait to preach the Because, the, honestly, this is like a stand-up routine to me. Because from here to the end of that chapter, it's like a comedy hour of excuses, denials, and explanations. By the time we're at the end of chapter 9, they're going to ask this guy four times, how did you get your sight back? Four times. See, my dad used to make this quote. He'd say, there are none so blind as those who don't want to see. And then he'd often say to me, Steve, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. You remember the title of my sermon? Blind Eyes Versus a Blind Heart. Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. This man was sent to the pool of Siloam and in faith, obedience, he he comes back with his sight. (laughs) Pardon the pun. Okay? And as we will see, he goes from blind, congenitally blind, to seeing. But look at verse 15 in the chapter, all right? In verse 15, I want you to see this little preview. He goes from being born blind to he calls Jesus a prophet. All right? Look at verse 25. He'll defend himself and Jesus against charges of the Pharisees, I might add. We'll explain that. Then this is the part that makes me laugh. At verse 27, he becomes a witness for Jesus as an evangelist. He looks at these guys. He has never seen them. And he says, do you want to follow him too? I'll introduce him to you. He's never seen him. And then look at verse 34, because then he becomes a theologian, because he says, you guys tell me that this guy couldn't have healed me because he's not from God, because he's a sinner who claims to be God. All I know is that a sinner can't do these types of things. He actually understands more theology than the experts. And then finally, in verse 38, when he meets Jesus, he confesses him as Lord. Now, I want you to contrast that with verses 7 to 11, because they don't only reject Jesus, they reject anyone connected to Jesus. It's a classic case of the blind see, but the singer blind. 
And I love this. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is not this the man? Did you ever read this? Now, again, this is where it gets comical for me. Because his neighbors, like these are not people that had heard of him. They grew up around him. He comes back seeing. Now he's standing there, but everybody else has had a conversation. Have you ever had that happen? When you're there, but there's three or four people talking about you as if you're not there. And then you, you stamp your foot or you go, <clears throat> like, I'm here in the room. You know, your kids will do that to you as parents. Have you ever caught yourself as parents? You're talking about your kid, and your kid reminds you, like, I'm here, by the way, right? As you're talking about me in the third person, I'm present. My mother does this. She's nasty for this because I've lived out of the house more than in it, and I'm an only child. So my mom will talk to me and go, I will have to talk to my husband and ask him about this. And I'll look at her and go, you mean like my dad? <laughs> right? But so they're, they're arguing over, no, this can't be him. It looks like him, but it can't be him. And he's like, guys, it's me. It's me. I can see. I can see you now. And look at the stir kicks up. They can't agree. They argue. And I love this. They're arguing. And he just says, it's me. Now watch how simple this testimony is. All I know is the man Jesus made mud, put it on my eyes. Told me to go and wash, and now I can see. And notice, it's about the person. This man, Jesus. Commentator Andreas Kostenberger said this, More than a mere miracle, this sign represents a highly symbolic display of Jesus' ability to cure spiritual blindness. As the, as the present story makes clear, the only sin against which there is no remedy is spiritual pride that claims to see while being, in fact, blind. And as we come to communion, I want you to know, and I want to ask you, do you and I love to see God glorified? Do you and I realize how much we are the beneficiaries of God's glory? In previews of coming attractions, Jesus is mentioned in verses 1 to 5. Jesus doesn't make another appearance in this chapter until verse 35, but he is still always active. You see, religion wants, religion's reaction to suffering is blame. How it reacts to Jesus is doubt or scorn or rejection. But we also see how those who trust and believe and respond are radically healed. Radically healed sometimes physically, but always spiritually. And with that spiritual healing comes a new set of eyes, an eyes of faith. So I want to ask you, who are you? Do you claim to see, yet deep down you're afraid? You're lonely? You're questioning? Maybe you're trying to drown out your lack of peace with substances or fun or pleasure or accomplishments, or accolades, or money? Or are you here today willing to say, I am blind and I can't deny it? I need help. I need Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, John Newton said, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But he had to own that he was blind. Now, you might be here this morning and say, listen, Steve, look, I acknowledge I got a need. But to be honest, I don't know what's going on in my heart and my head. I'm just struggling. I want you to know that's okay because Jesus can handle that. 
You know, I go to my doctor because things hurt. And I often don't know, almost always I go and I don't know why it hurts. And I go and I tell my doctor something hurts. And for me, Dr. Watson, I tell her what hurts and I tell, try to describe it and then she diagnoses me and then prescribes something for me. Oh, that you would see, you don't have to go to God and give him the answers. You go to God and tell him, this hurts. And I don't know why it hurts. But are you brave enough to let him diagnose you and then write you a prescription? That's the question. And so, will you let Jesus change your life? And then, Christian, as we come to the table of the Lord, let me make this real practical. I put this quote on my Facebook this morning. George Mueller wrote in the 1800s, Men and women are perishing in our time without the gospel and without Christ. They fill our cities and our countryside. There are the poor, the lonely, the outcasts of our society. The need is there. Who will reach them? Will you? Do you feel that you must work? Jesus felt it and as a result was a blessing to all who knew him. What have we done to be a blessing to those who are in need? So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, will you come and be washed by him? If you're here and you do know Jesus and we're about to do the table of the Lord, let me ask you this. Do you need to go back to the pool of Siloam and get cleaned up again? Dare I say it, do you need a fresh cleansing? Do you need your heart softened? Out there is not a political discussion or a theological discussion. It's real people who are hurting and need us to love them. And it's going to take time, money, effort, patience, and mess. And are we brave enough to bring it in here and not act like we got it all together, but that we're just as radically messed up as they are, but we will doggedly show them Jesus. At the end, you know what you're supposed to learn from this? The dude with the blind eyes actually had far more going for him than the people with physically seeing eyes because his heart eyes were wide open. Let's pray. Father God, please give us eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. Help me to know the balance, Lord, of pursuing you. And Lord, now as we come to the table of the Lord, help us and give us an understanding of what this really means. And Lord, if there be anybody here, we have many visitors, many friends that have stopped in to see us. Lord, I don't take it for granted. I am not the judge, jury, and executioner. I am simply a sinner who's found you. So if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you or is questioning that or wondering about it, don't let them leave, Father. Help them to be safe enough and courageous enough to say, I'm, I'm going to find that dude that ran his mouth up there and ask him about what he believes. And for my Christian brothers and sisters here, may we not just go through the motions on another Sunday. Lord, give us the courage to say, Lord, I, I'd really like to know what it's like to be changed again, to be reminded of all you've done for me. And maybe this time at communion we'll do just that. Oh, God, visit us, I pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.